Hey guys, I am Caleb Giddings here for Gun Day Brunch, and unfortunately Keith can't be with us this week because he has a job like I have a job, and it's it's been a pretty crazy week for both of us, but I wanted to pull a quick episode together and talk to you about some current events that are going on right now that are relevant to all of us as shooters, as patriots and as Second Amendment activists. But before we get into that, if you're watching this on YouTube, guys, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the channel for more videos. Hit that little notification bell so that you find out when we have new videos. And of course, make sure to share the podcast with your friends. And if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify or one of the other podcasting services, thank you. I appreciate it. And those five-star reviews that you leave are awesome and bring light and joy to my day. And lastly, before we get into the content of today's video, I would like to thank our sponsors, who all appear in a wonderful sponsor banner down under my hands, if you're watching the video version. If you're not watching the video version and you're listening to the podcast, they're all great sponsors. I don't know all of them off the top of my head. Normally, Keith does the ad reads for us. Sorry, guys. All right, now, let's get down to business to do the news or defeat the Huns, whichever one of those you think is more important. But let's focus on the news first. And the first bit of news that we have is it's August, and August is National Shooting Sports Month. National Shooting Sports Month is a month about the shooting sports. It's a celebration of the shooting sports, and it's supported by the National Shooting Sports Foundation. And the NSSF in National Shooting Sports Month, Shooting Sports Month, as I type this into my computer, the National Shooting Sports Month, as put on by the NSSF, is a way to lead the charge in growing shooting sports participation, which the good news is has been on the rise. One of the interesting side effects of the COVID-19 crisis that we're starting to see now is people who bought these guns are now looking for something to do with them. In August, National Shooting Sports Month, how many times can I say that, is the perfect time for them to go and learn. If you think about it, ammo prices are starting to come down back to where they're not back to where they were pre-pandemic, but they are starting to get lower. We'll see how the events of the next few weeks with the Delta variant and some of the concerns that people have shape out. But for now, ammo prices are starting to normalize again, which is good. That means people can go shoot, which is also good, which means the people that bought all of these guns are looking for a place to shoot. So if you're a range owner or a coordinator or something like that, you can go to the NSSF's website at shootingsportsmonth.org and you can list your range as a place for people to go shoot. You can become a partner with the NSSF on how to assist growing the shooting sports. And you can also just send them an email and ask for guidance on how you can help with National Shooting Sports Month. This is something that I care about a lot. My journey as a gun owner really actually started with the shooting sports. When I was a kid, uh, my dad took my dad was a cop. He took me shooting a couple of times when I was a kid, and you know I got you know kid guns like twenty two magnum bolt rifle, uh, stuff like that. I shot my friends black powder rifles a bit as well, but my real journey into the shooting sports didn't start until I started shooting NRA collegiate pistol and started competing in these bullseye events, these Olympic style shooting events. That was what got me hooked. 
And then I got out, uh, I spent some time not shooting, and then I got into USPSA and IDPA. And that was, I think I shot my first IDPA match in 2009. So I have been at this for a long time. But I'm super passionate about the shooting sports because I've seen how it changes people's attitudes towards guns. I've seen people go from thinking guns are evil and scary to seeing them used in sport and go, oh, these aren't so bad. I've seen people who could barely shoot well, and they start to participate in the shooting sports, and suddenly they become much more talented shooters. They become much more competent as shooters, and that that's kind of what we want, right? We want good shooters. We want more competent shooters. We want talented shooters. We want people who love the shooting sports and want to keep participating in the shooting sports because there is a direct link between people who participate in the shooting sports as a activity with friends and family and people who act to preserve their gun rights. Because if your gun is more to you than just something that you throw in the sock drawer, if it's your a link to friendship, if it's a link to these activities that you cherish, then you're going to be more likely to actually engage in the acts uh, that are necessary to preserve your right to keep and bear arms. So get people involved. It's National Shooting Sports Month, guys. Let's go out. Let's try to get some people shooting. If you're not shooting, uh, why don't you go and join a shooting sport? You can go to USPSA or IDPA's website. You can shoot Bullseye. There are so many great options for the shooting sports out there. There's literally a shooting sport for basically everybody's particular cup of tea. If you like slow precision, we got you. If you like fast action, we got you. If you like shotguns, we got you. Shooting sports for everyone, guys. So that's our first piece of news, August, National Shooting Sports Month. Our next piece of news is political. We have been talking, myself and Keith have been talking at length about the nomination of David Waco Chipman, or Waco, Waco, Waco. See, this is why I need Keith here. He would tell me how I'm supposed to say it if it's Waco or Waco. But anyway, we have been talking uh, at length about David Chipman's nomination to be the director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and how you should contact your senators and tell them in no uncertain terms that he is grossly unqualified to be the director and that he, for whatever reason, whether it's his lack of leadership at the ATF, whether it's his possible involvement in the Fast and the Furious scandal, whether it's the fact that he works for an anti-gun organization, all of those. Those are all reasons. But now there's another reason, and I have to thank Stephen Gutowski at The Reload for bringing this to our attention because it seems that several of Mr. Chipman's former ATF colleagues wrote an open letter opposing his nomination to the head of the ATF. Now think about that for a minute. These aren't just like people like you or me who are against his nomination for many, many good reasons. These are people who worked with him who knew him, who were aware of his career, who are coming out to say, this man's not fit to lead the ATF. So let's examine some of those, some of the things that they said. And again, if you'd like to read the entire letter, uh, it's posted on thereload.com. 
and its former ATF colleagues' right letter opposing Biden director nominee. I'm just going to hit the highlights that the reload hit as well. So here's some of the comments that these former agents made about Mr. Chipman's potential leadership at the ATF. And I quote, David's strong personal belief on firearms will create serious and long-lasting problems for the Bureau and the effective execution of its law enforcement mission. We relied on effective partnerships with industry, stakeholders, and other law enforcement agencies to execute our missions. Unfortunately, if David were confirmed, ATF partners would see someone who is coming to the agency with his top priority being to implement a divisive gun control agenda. This is important. We've actually talked about this on the show. When the ATF is actually doing its its good job, which is, you know, stopping criminals, sometimes, look, yes, damn, sometimes the ATF goes off the rails and they do some messed up stuff. However, a lot of the times the ATF is actually trying to stop legitimate criminals. When they do that, when they're successful with that, it often requires the help and the partnership of the private sector, of the firearms industry, to help them in a timely fashion with their records and that sort of stuff. By bringing in somebody who is clearly anti-gun, who is opposed to there even being a firearms industry, you would see a lot of those partnerships, a lot of the ways that the ATF actually fights crime when it fights crime would go by the wayside. And I don't think anyone that listens to this show actually wants criminals to have guns, but David Chipman's nomination and confirmation would actually make it easier for criminals to get away with gun crime because it would make it harder for the industry to participate as partners with the ATF. I concur, ATF agents. I concur. All right, moving on to the second uh, the second bit. So here's one of my favorites, and this is something I didn't know until I read this letter, but they did actually point out that he never progressed to senior leadership level. So here's another quote from the, from the letter. While in the Bureau, he never progressed, he being David Chipman, he never progressed to the senior executive service or to senior leadership within the agency. Putting David in charge of ATF would be like asking a small business owner to lead a Fortune 500 company. Even though he was an ATF agent, David would be the least qualified individual to lead the agency in its history. That's interesting, and I did not know that. I had sort of assumed from his kind of vague resume that he had at least progressed to senior leadership within the ATF, and I was wrong. And many people had that same assumption that I had because there's no way that you would nominate just a former special agent to run the agency. That's crazy. That would be like putting me in my military job, I'm, a e, I'm an E6, that would be like saying, hey, E6, you can run this whole wing, right? No, no, I can't. I'm an E6. I'm a good E6. But when I'm at my part-time job in the Air Force Reserve, I'm good at executing at the E6 level. I lack the qualification, expertise, and skills to execute at the wing commander level. And if Mr. Chipman was only ever a special agent and only then a consultant to anti-gun uh, anti groups, he also lacks the knowledge, skills, and experience to execute at the director level of the ATF. So not only is he biased and would his confirmation damage our ability as an industry to actually help the ATF stop the real bad guys, but... He's also completely unqualified for the job. Uh, for example, here's some other uh, issues with his qualifications from one of the agents. 
quote, having been at the Bureau at the same time as Mr. Chipman and having followed his career after he left the Bureau, we are very familiar with his leadership style and approach to leading the agency. While an agent, David did not exhibit the collaborative and respectful type of leadership required of an agency director that must manage a diverse workforce with challenging issues. While we can say without hesitation that David is very smart, we can also say without hesitation that he was very often not a team player and had a troubling tendency to think he was always right. Again, that is it's a very polite way of saying that he always has to get his own way, which for us as gun owners would be hugely concerning that he would then use his position and his personality to get his own way, his own way being what he suggested, assault weapon bans, handgun bans, all of these other things. So these agents right then and there have leveled some pretty damning claims at David Chipman. Uh, we have one more from the agents, and this is something that, again, I agree with. Quote, ATF needs a director whose personal beliefs about gun ownership would not be a distraction from the critically important work of the men and women of ATF. A nominee with a proven track record of leadership, fairness, and diplomacy is not only needed for the director's position, it is necessary to ensure that the ATF can execute its mission. David Chipman is not that nominee. Again, I agree. Regardless of how you feel about the ATF, whether or not they should be abolished or anything like that, we can, you know, go have our, you know, super libertarian arguments later. If you accept that the ATF is going to exist as an agency, it has to have some kind of leadership. But clearly, these former agents, who are the people who would be in the best position to make this judgment, and that's important. These agents are the people who would be most qualified to make a judgment of David Chipman's character, of his ability to effectively lead the ATF, and he and, – and they said he's not. It's pretty much that simple. They said people who actually worked with him – and I'm going to do one more quote from the letter. It's in the first paragraph. I love it. Having been at the Bureau with David, we are unfortunately brought to the conclusion that he is the wrong man for the job and should not be confirmed to lead the Bureau. I don't think that you can get any more, any more conclusive than that, guys. I really don't. So his nomination is still pending. It's in the Senate Judiciary Committee right now. Contact your senators. Go to their website, find their email addresses, then copy them. Go to I know this is a lot of work. I I appreciate that, but it's worth it. Once you get their email address, you go and you go to your Gmail or you know Hotmail or AOL. If you're the one person I know who still has AOL, put in their email address and you say, "Dear Senator So and So, as your constituent, I concur." with the analysis presented by former ATF agents of David Chipman's nomination that he is not the man for the job. He is clearly unqualified based on his lack of senior leadership status, his openly biased views against fire, the firearms industry, which would make partnerships with the industry difficult, etc., etc., etc. Your constituent who votes, no, not that last part, your constituent, so-and-so. All right. Simple letter, one to each senator. Don't copy paste them. Mix them up so they look different because form letters get yeeted. 
actual letters get read. Doesn't matter who your senators are. If they're the bluest of blue of blue, send the email. If they are hardcore Republicans, send the email. If it's Joe Manchin, send the email. Send an email every week. If it's Kristen Sinema, send an email every week. If it's John Tester, send an email every week. Those three Democrats are quite literally the key to keeping some very bad things from happening. So you let them know that you're pro-gun, and you let them know that you vote, and you do it respectfully because you're a real man. You're a real grown-up. You're a real big lady. Whatever you are, you're an attack helicopter. I don't care. Anyway, write your senators. Tell them to oppose this guy's nomination for Pete's sakes. we got to keep the pressure on. And if you want to, I would include a link in that email to the article in the reload talking about how bad he is. Maybe I should just link to the letter. The letter would probably be even better. All right, and now we have one more piece of news before I end for the week, guys, and it is hilarious. It's not actually hilarious. Well, okay, no, it's, it's pretty hilarious. I'm going to go ahead and pull this one up because... It kind of cracks me up, but it's also super – it's super political, all right? So here's what's going on. You guys remember uh, – <laughs> I'm just going to read the headline because the headline's too ridiculous. Mexican government sues U.S. – it's so ridiculous I messed it up. Mexican government sues U.S. gun makers over cartel crime. Yeah, that's right. Yes. You didn't, you didn't hear me wrong. I read that correctly. Mexican government sues U.S. gun makers over cartel crime. And your first poll is the government of Mexico is suing six U.S. gun makers and one Boston area wholesaler claiming massive damage created by unlawful trafficking of firearms to cartel and criminal elements. Um, I, it's so patently ridiculous. Like, okay, so here, here's who they're suing. They're suing uh, the six, according to the, the lawsuit, they're suing the six U.S.-based manufacturers whose guns are most often recovered in Mexico. Smith & Wesson, Beretta, Century Arms, Colt, Glock, and Ruger. Uh, and they, oh, and they're also including um, Interstate Arms, which is a Boston area wholesaler that I've actually... Uh, never heard of interstate, so they can't be that big of a wholesale shop. But anyway, so here's the there, there's a number of problems with this. One, obviously, it's super politically motivated. Two, it's also not going to go anywhere because, from what I understand, is they are suing them. Uh, no, no, no. They're su are they suing them in Mexican court or American court? They're suing them in American court. So in the U.S. District Court for Massachusetts. So they even mention the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which we have brought up in the past on this show, as specifically protecting gun manufacturers from criminal activities performed with their weapons. Here's the thing. In no universe is Smith and uh, I'm going to read these companies again. In no universe is Smith and Wesson, Beretta, Century Arms, Colt, Glock, or Ruger selling guns intentionally to cartels. They're not. They absolutely are not. You know why? Cuz that's a federal fucking crime 
and the federal government would put them out of business overnight if they were doing that crap on purpose. Here's what happens. And here's the, the thing, too. Do you guys really think that Glocks are coming into Mexico straight from the United States? Of Sure, yes. Damn. Some guns that are sold in the United States end up being used in crime in Mexico. Yes. Some of those guns were sold by were bought by the ATF. Um, this is actually kind of funny that this came out the day that we're talking about the Chipman thing because I wonder how many of those Berettas and Colts and Glocks and Rugers and Smith and Wessons that are recovered in crimes uh, were brought there by the ATF or were allowed to go there by the ATF. Why isn't the Mexican government suing the ATF over Operation Fast and Furious? I don't know, but I can tell you that suing Beretta or suing Colt or these other companies, it's political theater. At, at its most benign, it's political theater. If I was particularly conspiratorially minded, I would say that it is intentionally timed political theater uh, to weaken the gun industry, but then I would to believe that I would also have to believe that anti-gun activists in the United States are so powerful they could influence the Mexican government. I'm not quite there yet, and I hope you're not there either. You might be, but I'm not. Regardless, it's very largely political theater. It's them trying to it's them trying to cast blame for their inability to manage their own cartel problem somewhere else. So hey. Let's blame the guys that make the guns that the cartels buy from arms dealers, which, you know, however the arms dealers get their guns. It Again, the idea, it's so frustrating stuff like this because the narrative on it is, oh my god, Smith & Wesson was selling guns to cartels. No, they freaking weren't. Uh, no. No. It's not even a sensible thing. But it's out there, and it's something that you should be aware of, and it's specifically why the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act is so important. And it's also interesting that this case was brought in the District Court of Massachusetts, which tends to be more anti-gun than other jurisdictions. Also, Smith & Wesson is headquartered there, and so is Interstate Arms, but uh, Ruger, has, Ruger has offices there, but Beretta doesn't, uh, neither does Century Arms. Colt does. So I guess they kind of went for three out of their, you know, or four of their defendants are there. So, hey, let's sue them in Massachusetts. Or it's more likely that they'll get a positive ruling in Massachusetts. Regardless, this is worth tracking because this, this could set up an expensive precedent for firearms industry manufacturers. Uh, specifically, the the Mexican government in their suit mentions the PLC the PLCAA and states the United States is free to choose its social policy reflecting a balance between the financial interests of the gun industry and the rights of victims within its jurisdiction. By the same token, however, the government of Mexico is entitled to choose a different social policy that reflects a different balance between the interests of victims in Mexico and the interests of gun manufacturers that foreseeably and deliberately cause trafficking of their guns into Mexico. So here's the part where I think they jacked up, and not a lawyer. So take this with a grain of salt. They would have to be able to prove that gun manufacturers could foresee and deliberately cause trafficking of their guns into Mexico. Good fucking luck with that. <sighs> but again, this one is worth tracking.
it's worth keeping an eye on because it's interesting, because it's the first time that I can recall where a foreign government sued U.S. firearms manufacturers over a case that if it was here in the States would get tossed out because of PLCAA. Like if this was the city of New York filing this lawsuit, tossed. Will it get tossed because, if it, because it's the Mexican government? I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see. And that is it for this week's episode of Gun Day Brunch featuring Caleb Giddings and Keith Finch. Sorry, that was that was so bad. Make sure you guys like, share, and subscribe. Uh, enjoy the episodes. Share them with your friends. We will have a video over this hand and a video over this hand. and Maybe a subscribe button here in the middle. All for you to take action on. Thanks for watching, guys, and I, and hopefully Keith, will be back next week with another episode.